0: welcome to the diabetics doing things podcast we've been telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics all across the world since 2015 and we have over a thousand years of living with t1d on the podcast the interviews range from incredible feats to everyday victories and we celebrate them all just the same thanks for listening and if you want to get involved even further just send me an email at rob at diabeticsdoingthings.com
1: Major
0: this episode is sponsored by Health IQ uh, what, what's health IQ? HealthIQ is a life insurance agency, but but with a very modern and cool twist, HealthIQ is making life insurance fair by unlocking the value of health consciousness for the 50 million Americans who take responsibility for their health. This is especially relevant for me because as a type 1 diabetic, I've been denied life insurance coverage by other providers. Even though my A1Cs are in range, I eat Whole30 and can still kill guys 10 years younger than me on the basketball court, which is super frustrating. Health IQ can give people exclusive rates through their Health IQ quiz, and they even take into account data points from things like Fitbits and other trackers. You can learn more about Health IQ and get a free quote at healthiq.com DDT. That's D-D-T, short for diabetics doing things. And if you're like, Rob, I am not really in a place where I'm thinking about life insurance, I'll tell you this. When it comes to retirement and planning for when you're not around, there's no time like the present to at least learn what you qualify for. So give it a shot. Go to healthiq.com/slash DDT and get a free quote today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We're telling the amazing stories of type 1 diabetics from all across the world. And my very special guest today is Key Payton, calling from Southern California. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Rob.
0: Key, uh, you and I met last month when I was out in California uh, on the Medtronic campus. And. Yep. Um, Oh, Krampus or campus? I can't talk today. So at the Medtronic <laughs> campus. Um, and I want to really dive into your story because, uh, after my presentation, you came up and talked to me and, and told me you've been living with type one for 57 years. So, uh, not to build this up too much, but you're now, you, you'll, will be the, uh, the person who's been living with type one, the longest to be on the podcast. The previous right. uh, record holder was 41 years. So, uh, okay, well, that's a good record, I guess. Yeah, that's a good record to have. Uh, um, so, Keith, tell us a little bit about you uh, and then uh, your diagnosis story.
1: All right. Well, um, I uh, was born in 1956 out in New Mexico. Um, we thought it was fairly civilized, but it's relative, it was relatively remote at the time. And um, when I was three and a half years old, I got really sick with the flu and I don't really remember any of this, except sort of through people recounting it after the fact. You know, I'm three, I don't remember much of that at all. Sure. And um, so after about three or four weeks of the flu really bad, I seemed to have gotten over the flu, but I uh, had lost a lot of weight. And so my parents started trying to fatten me up again. And um, we also had a, a gal that cooked for us fairly often uh, as a kind of a friend. And so, uh, between her mo- her cooking and my mom's cooking, they were just putting all kinds of stuff in me to try to get me to gain weight again. And it wasn't working. In fact, I was going to the bathroom almost constantly. Uh, you know, I was melting away probably a pound and a half a day, just was disappearing. And um, so, obviously, my parents thought they were going to lose me. They didn't know what to do. They took me to a local doctor. That doctor didn't really know what to prescribed, except he said, I think this might be the thing called diabetes that I've heard about. The nearest place you can get expertise on that is about 200 miles away. So my, my parents, I was their baby, third child, uh, and the other two had been perfectly healthy. Um, so uh, they took the drive and, and uh, went to a hospital in Lubbock, Texas, and um, found a doctor there who was actually uh, diabetic himself, and uh, they described the symptoms and introduced the doctor to me. And he was like, "Yeah, he needs to be on insulin right away." Um, so I know you often ask people about their uh, the day of discovery and what the night before being discovered a diabetic were. I really don't remember. Sure, uh, sure. But uh, I started on insulin. I think within about a week or a week and a half. After all this, you know, the flu was gone, and the weight, but the weight wasn't coming back. And um, naturally, being a three and a half year old, I really didn't like these shot things that I had to start taking every morning. Um, my parents waking me up, and you know, stinking me, and and convincing little three year old me that that was a necessity.
0: Well, and, um, and you know, three year olds are not the most rational human beings of all time, right? No, they. Uh, no, no. So I always, always wonder, did you ever have conversations with your parents later on in life about, you know, those early days?
1: Yeah, yeah. They uh, they described that it was really hard for them to give me shots and that I was very disagreeable about the whole prospect, but they really wanted to keep me alive. And this diabetic doctor had shown them he was, you know, in his 40s and pretty healthy. He'd had it several years and was managing it with, with insulin. And so they, they stuck with it. They were very dogged to make sure I got through it.
0: And I think too, uh, that's, you know, you mentioned that sometimes I ask people about, you know, the day or the night before or uh, that they were diagnosed, but I also ask a lot about bedside manner and I'm sure you don't remember any of that either, but um, sort of a blessing in disguise, right? Going from where you were from in New Mexico, all the way to Lubbock, Texas, and the doctor was a type one himself.
1: Right. Oh, amazing providence that I, you know, met somebody because like I said, the doctors in my town had no idea they they were sort of like you know back well we think that my grandmother my father's mother probably died of diabetes we think that that's kind of the genetic path but that's this was in the 1930s and back then they just called things like this consumption right you know they it was like well it's sort of like we don't know it's kind of a tuberculosis or maybe it's a really bad flu or we don't we don't know what to call it and so uh you know, it was very fortunate, providential, that I found a doctor who knew what it was about.
0: Yeah, and I think then you know you mentioned you know really 70, 80 years ago that there was no you know diagnosis, you know, no knowledge share. Um, I think now you know in the age of the internet and and uh, you know the connected world that we live in, it's been amazing all the resources that not only patients but also doctors have available to them, but you know, really for, for a long time in small remote areas, you were, you had to rely on what your doctor knew. And especially for diseases like type one that don't affect the large amount, you know, the large majority of the population, um, you know, there, there was really no, no one to point a finger of blame towards, right. You just, you don't know what you don't know. Um, but, but then also, you know, you, from a treatment standpoint, Initially, at least things were, I'm sure were difficult. And do you remember sort of as they as you got older, how the how the treatment options, I guess were you know more readily available or were easier to use?
1: Yeah, I, you know uh, people who become diabetic today or in the last probably 25 years are right away introduced with the concept of finger sticks and blood glucose meters. and it's really telling you very accurately up to the moment what your blood sugar is at that at that second in time. When I was growing up, the best thing we had was urine tests and uh, we didn't learn until years later that those were three or four hours behind schedule. They were showing me what my blood sugar was four hours ago, but it's finally showing up in my urine. And so, you know, the the, the, the vagueness about well, where where is his blood sugar now, really, uh, it's drastically diminished now because we have these up-to-the-moment, Blood glucose sensors, and then now with the improvement of having uh, insertable glucose sensors, uh, you know, every five minutes you get an update. And that's just an incredible advance, you know, in the last 50 years. I'm, I'm actually going to be celebrating my 58th anniversary of diabetes in January. Wow. Uh, the uh, technology has advanced incredibly over those 58 years.
0: And you know, just to give you know, you mentioned a few things like just to give our listeners an idea of you know what what it was like to treat your to treat your type one, uh, you know, forty years ago, fifty years ago. You're talking about you know glass needles, right, and different insulin, right. and um, and you know you you mentioned uh, you know peeing on the keto sticks, and you right. know, that, was that, right. that that was about as close as you could get to you know what your actual numbers were. What, yeah. for, for you, you know, talk a little bit about those and then also talk about, you know, as you have, you know, now you're about to be 58 years with type one. Uh, what were those big milestones? What are those things that you remember from a technology standpoint and from a treatment standpoint along the way that really kind of gave you a little bit of relief or hope? Sure, sure.
1: Well, yeah, I, I always try to be an encourager to those who are struggling with diabetes today because, yes, it's still a struggle, but the um, – the metal needles that they were using on me when I was three and a half to you know, 11 or 12 when I finally started giving my own shots um, were bigger around than a mechanical pencil leg. So they didn't slide in easy. It was a jolt when they went in. And you had to boil them before every injection to keep them sanitized, to you know, keep them hygienic. And um, again, the clinic tests, the, the urine tests were very vague, and they were sort of based on a color scale, a range, and sometimes you couldn't really tell, and so you were just walking in a murk most of the time, a murky forest a lot of time about, well, how am I really doing? Um, And over the years, as the testing systems improved, and it was a little more clear about what sugar range I was in, and also the frequency of injections, because, you know, back then, one shot a day was considered pretty normal until they started to realize, actually, that's not how the pancreas works at all. The pancreas is giving insulin throughout the day at different times, so multiple injections a day is necessary. Now, as a kid with those very thick needles, I hated the idea. So somewhere in there came the uh, almost hair-thin needles from Lily, uh, the B- or the BD, I'm sorry, uh, Beckton dickinson uh, needles that were very slim, and literally they just sort of slid in. Oh, what a wonderful improvement that was. I didn't feel as jolt as a needle stuck in me. And so then multiple injections became a little more bearable. And, um, you know, like everybody, I didn't want to make a big deal of my diabetes. And so I tried to be discreet. And this was long before they knew about what we had access to insulin pens or anything like that. So I carried a little kid around, but I tried to keep it tucked away in a bag or something. And so those are big steps, and then in 1986, I was in my um, early 20s, I um, was working, living and working back east as a magazine editor, and I heard something about an insulin pump, I think from the Jocelyn Clinic, uh, which is on the east coast. And um, I went to a doctor, an endocrinologist that was sort of an advocate for this insulin pump thing, and it was about a foot long and about three inches square, you know, if you looked at it from the top, uh, the size of them old-fashioned army walkie-talkie, <laughs> and um, uh, it had a, a fairly thick tube coming out of it, and the, uh, the infusion set uh, wasn't a very easy fit. Um, And so they hooked me up with it because they thought, yes, you're a brittle diabetic, diabetic, you have lots of fluctuations, ups and downs, and so forth. So they fitted me up with it. But let me add to this context that I was a single guy, and I was really hoping to find a wife and get married. And there's really no conversation stopper like a foot-long walkie-talkie hanging out your belt at all times. Um, So I didn't last very long on that particular insulin pump. Uh, it didn't really matter how good the control might be. It was just such a, a bar to any such kind of successful dating life. Yeah, so, and, and uh, I think
0: that's, <laughs> you know, I, I want to focus on that too because I think, you know, that's something that we all sort of go through less less nowadays, but especially when you're recently diagnosed, you sort of have to go through these adjustments of, oh, okay, this is this – is, I'm able to treat my life and, and I'm able to eat and I'm able to be healthy, but then there's this whole lifestyle element along with it. So. Uh, I, I love that story when you told it to me in, uh, in California about the, you know, the backpack pump. And I was able to go into the, the Medtronic museum and kind of take a look at some of those really large, uh, really cumbersome, uh, very difficult to explain. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: you know, so what was that like? I mean, at least, you know, grow, coming up into your teenage and adult years, uh, you know, have, having that dating life with the sort of primitive technology.
1: Well, you know, I I did the best I could, and um, again, as life went on, I got to learn how to kind of minimize the profile of my insulin kit, and um, you know, like jackets with in, inside pockets was a nice way to kind of tuck it out of sight, and and um, got comfortable with sort of saying uh, at a restaurant if I was on a day, excuse me a second, I have to go to the bathroom. If that's not go and take my Insulin shot for the dinner. Um, and, you know, somewhere in there I began using uh, a, like a combination of slow acting and fast acting insulins. And um, that definitely improved my mornings because, you know, I probably had been awakening with high 200 plus blood sugars for years
0: um, because I have
1: the Dawn syndrome and I tend to, you know, rise from about 2 till 7 a.m., my blood sugar just tends tend to rise automatically, so uh, there were various improvements. Like I said, the, add the the overnight acting insulin-like Lantus or whatever it was at that time um, made a big difference. It helped my mood in the morning. Uh, yeah, somehow I've managed to live in about 10 different cities from the time I left home at age 18 uh, fairly independently. Uh, you know, I moved away from my family in New Mexico, and I lived in St. Louis, and Portland, Oregon, and Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., and a bunch of places pursuing a magazine publishing career. And, uh, you know, my constitution, I guess, was inherited. It was fairly fairly strong. I'm not, like, super athletic, but, but my uh, family seems to be generally healthy, and so um, I was uh, sorry doing a little pump adjustment at the moment. Uh, Okay, so I was uh, managing to to build a career in writing and editing and publishing, and and, uh, sometimes that involves some really long hours, you know. Sometimes when you're working on a deadline, it it turned into a 60- or 70-hour week to get things done on time, and manage the diabetes through all that. uh, uh. But along the way, I did have uh, three or four blackouts, a couple of them while I was driving. And so uh, I was realizing, okay, you still don't really have this under control. You really need to uh, find something better to, to keep it maintained. So I kind of was always on the lookout, but I didn't actually get on my Medtronic series of pumps until I'd already been married one year. So I met my wife with no pumps, but she heard about pumps and said, we need to get you on one of those.
0: That's cool. That's always interesting to see, you know, the recommendations when it comes from a partner. All right, we're going to try something different here at about the midway point of this interview. We talked about it at the beginning of the podcast, but I just wanted to give another plug to Health IQ. Really, Health IQ is just like car insurance, but for life insurance. And let me explain. It's like if you're a safe driver, you get more competitive rates. That makes sense. Uh, Health IQ just takes into account an overall healthy lifestyle and passes those savings along. It's that simple. Plus, it's good for you. The American Heart Association reports that an overall healthy lifestyle is associated with nearly 60% lower risk of mortality by cardiovascular disease. That's always good news. So get the rewards for living that healthy lifestyle. Check out healthiq.com DDT today. And now we'll get back to the episode. And I, you know, you talked about your career kind of going, jumping from city to city, pursuing a a career in journalism. Now you're a little bit on the other side and, and you're adjusting your pump made me think of it. So you work for Medtronic. Um, and I believe you're in the research and development team, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so, um, among other things, that means you guys get to be on the cutting edge of diabetes research. So, um, I think we're really fortunate to have you doing that since you've seen the full spectrum of uh, pretty much everything though every treatment option we've had since the beginning. Um, and now you're on the the six seventy g if if I'm not right. mistaken, right? So uh, you're on the the closed loop hybrid closed loop system. so yeah. how how is that to you know for somebody who's known their diabetes and and been with, I guess for fifty five years probably before you got on the six
1: seventy at least? I mean, I've been on um, the 670G for about seven months. Great. uh, And so, yeah, uh, previous to that, you know, I'd had the 530G and the 630G, the the 508, the 512, you know, several throughout the years. And um, it was really wonderful to be able to have insulin available at all times. And because of the basal rate approach, that it gives you insulin constantly in a very small amount, which is much more like a healthy pancreas works, that made a huge improvement right there, was that I had better mornings. I didn't, you know, it, it knew how to overcome my Dawn, Dawn syndrome, and so I was waking up with a pretty reasonable blood sugar, and uh, I didn't stay high after meals that much. So it, it was helping. Um, but they only get on the 670G, which has this constant... Feedback loop between the sensor and the pump, and the pump has an algorithm built into it that helps the pump calculate when you need insulin, even if you're not even aware of it. Uh, and again, that's sort of how the healthy body works. Um, you know, in a healthy body, the um, the pancreas senses, or the brain somehow senses, okay, he's got a sugar rise. Maybe he's anxious or stressed, or you know, he decided to have an extra big lunch. And so we're, we're going to give him extra insulin to overcome that. And that's what the 670G does. It's just an amazing improvement in terms of the, the sort of feedback loops that a, a healthy human body is, is built on. You know, all these interdependent systems working and relaying information back and forth. Well, this hybrid closed loop, it's not perfect as an artificial pancreas, but it's the closest thing so far. And it really has made a huge improvement. My A1C is now, it's about 6.2. It's gone down a full point in the last six months.
0: Wow. That's pretty incredible when you think about, um, and I mean, I'm sure you have this sort of viewpoint and context of a life with diabetes, obviously. Um, And, you know, the the benefit that people like myself who have been diagnosed in the last 25 years or so, uh, it'll be 13 years for me on January 1st you know, that we have going forward, you know, that we have this feedback loop that's much tighter and much, uh, you know, more easily accessible, Um, you know, we can have those conversations with our doctor, with our healthcare provider very easily, Um, and, you know, how that's going to impact the the overall long-term view of life with diabetes.
1: Right, and there's many more improvements afoot. I can't talk about them yet because they have to go through all kinds of testing and FDA approvals and all that sort of thing. But um, as we know with our phone apps, they're frequently uh, uploading new, new versions, better versions, bug fixes. That's a hint at what the future version of Instant Ponks will be able to do.
0: That's pretty awesome. And um, you know, because I know you can't give away any, uh, any secrets or updates, just answer this question. Are, are you hopeful for what's coming? Or does it, does it get you excited about life with Type 1 for the future?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I know you have uh, some amazing athletes and and uh, folks on your show, and yourself being an athlete, uh, and and it's great that that that's much more capable. When I was a child, my parents were really afraid to let me run too much because they were so afraid that I would have, have a low blood sugar and there'd be no warning, and you know I'd be too far away from them for them to get there in time. And nowadays, you know, because we have uh, all kinds of ways to Keep track of our blood sugar and pause our insulin, and you know we're not getting insulin stacked up in our system, so we can exercise pretty freely and put the insulin on hold and then start back up on the insulin later. Uh, all these things are huge improvements, and I think that that's going to continue to grow to make um, diabetics more and more capable of doing anything, you know, anything that a healthy person can do, um, and because this technology. Um, I typically wear it out because I frequently look at my graphs and on my insulin pump to see what they're saying, but um, it's small enough to fit in my pocket, to be completely out of sight most of the time, and, uh, and yet it'll alert me, it'll vibrate if there's an issue with my blood sugar being too high or too low, and uh, it's very discreet. So I think there's so many ways now that I don't think diabetics should keep their disease a secret. I think, in fact, that it's becoming so much more common that a lot of people are more interested in learning about diabetes as the as the amount of type two diabetes increases in our country and in the world. More and more people are like, "You're diabetic. Tell me what's that like? What's that about?" They want to understand, and because they have information, they're also more knowledgeable about how to help me should I ever have a low blood sugar, which is a good thing. Yeah, but, you know, it's nice to have people around you that kind of go. Okay, I know if you're acting really weird, I should probably give you a poke.
0: Well, you know? and I think, you know, <laughs> when you talk about just general awareness, I think, I mean, type two is the driver for awareness, right? Because uh, there's so much more cases of it. It's so much more, um, you know, they. I think there was, there was a stat that said by like 2050 – one third of the United States will have type two diabetes. Right. So obviously a staggering number, you know, that's like I'm 100 hundred million, if that, if that's correct. And I'm not saying it is, right. uh, around hundred million people. Um, obviously type one community makes up a small percentage of that. But, um, like you said, those conversations can, you know, um, you know, the awareness of, of people from a treatment standpoint, Hey, this guy probably needs help. He might have a low blood sugar. I'd love for that to be just sort of something that everybody knows. Um, you know, at some, at some point for you though, um, was, were you always sort of outgoing and, and, uh, comfortable talking about your diabetes or did that come at a specific time for you? Um, you know, anywhere in the teenage years or as you were, you know, kind of going from city to city with your career, did you, was it always just a part of your life or was it more in the, uh, take a sort of a back
1: seat? Well, I did not meet, besides this doctor, I did not meet a diabetic my age until I was nine years old. And so the two of us in the same town felt very weird and isolated, you know. Um, But then when I was 12, my parents sent me to uh, a diabetes camp where I met three or four hundred other kids with diabetes. And all of a sudden I felt like, okay, I'm not that weird. And it was like one of the common treat, uh, teachings at this camp was if you don't tell people you have diabetes and that, you know, this is what they need to need to do to raise your sugar if you're acting weird, it was suddenly like, oh, this is kind of what my parents were telling me too. But, of course, they parents and you don't listen to them. You know, but the camp was a huge uh, transformative thing because that's where I started learning to give myself my own shots and a sense of you know, this is not something I have to tolerate my parents doing. This is me taking responsibility for my own treatment, my own health, my own care. So that's kind of when it became a little more out front, although I didn't go around advertising it until I'd had several low blood sugars and blacked out, and people had no clue what to do, and I had to pay extra money for the ambulance to the emergency room instead of the price of a Coca-Cola. So, you know... (laughs) It was sort of I, I, as the years went on, and I realized I want to pursue a full life, and I don't. If I keep it a secret, the odds are higher that I will black out somewhere, and people will throw me in a drunk tank. The police will throw me in a drunk tank rather than going. Oh, he's got a diaper, credit bracelet on, and the, you know people have already given him some coke, and he's already coming to, and he seems normal again. So, I I just realized it was just practical to not keep it a big secret, not to advertise it. I don't brag about it. But at the same time, it's like, you know, if I have, if I'm deaf in one ear, I tend to, I am deaf in one ear. I tend to tell people I'm deaf in that ear. Can you get on this side of me? It just kept the conversations going and life going more normally for me to admit. A couple of tweaks in my health that, you know, I still want to be part of life and, you know, participate fully but it's good if you know these things so that we can cooperate in making this conversation more congenial and, and, and equal. So that's kind of, it came to me really probably pretty fully by the time I was 23 or 24 to quit being too upset about it and admit too much. Just, you know, so I'm not a, I'm not a fast learner. It did take me <laughs> about three years to get it, but it uh, once I did, it was kind of like, People are cool with that. It's okay. If they have a problem with it, it's kind of their problem because everybody gets a chronic disease at some point in their lives.
0: And I think it's just something that it just takes time to, you know, to when you're 23, 24, you're sort of becoming at peace with who you are anyway, right? Yeah. Uh, where you're, you're more comfortable, hey, this is me, take it or leave it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's a good time and a lot of the type ones that I talk to are around that age and they're, uh, some of the questions that they have are, you know, very similar uh, to you know to what you were saying. It's like, hey, you know what? Um, I feel like I can say this now with my friends. I'd like for them to, you know, know that I have it under control. But if something were to go wrong, know what to do. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I remember my parents made it really uh, clear, and my doctor too, to have the have a conversation with my friends. And I sort of adapted that as I got through high school, and went to college. It was like, hey, I have type one diabetes. All that means is. I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm I'm gonna be fine all the time, but there might be a couple of times where I'm running to the fridge to grab a coke, or oh. I'm uh, you know checking my blood sugar and giving myself an injection before we eat. So that's you know, and that's pretty much it. Um, and you
1: sensor for a while, right? Have you
0: uh, had sensor? I, I've not. I've I've only used the sensor now for uh, you know really the last two or three months. Uh, so. Oh. Uh, it, I didn't, you know, it was a weird thing. I didn't think that I wanted it. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know. I, it was one of those things you don't know what you don't know. So, yeah. I I didn't fight it, but once it became available to me, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll put it off. I'll put it off. Um, yeah. and then as I got more involved in the Type One community, I was like, well, I want to see what this is like, and I love it. I love having a sensor, and I cannot wait to have a sensor that's hooked up to my pump. Right. Um and can help me make decisions uh, without really with without my own input which is going to be really exciting
1: yeah it be, because the pump sensors of the pumps and sensors are linked in such a way that they don't tell you at the moment you need to run to the refrigerator for the coke they'll tell you half an hour before and that is such an advantage i'm never so low where i'm like <laughs> i gotta get a coke it's more like yeah okay, I've got at least 30 more minutes before I'm even going to feel this. And so I'm well in advance of it, you know. But I don't ever feel those lower things. So the sensor the is a big advantage in that way.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, being able to look at it, I always knew I'd have these moments where I was like, okay, you know, whatever my blood sugar is, I still feel like I'm going down or I or I feel like I'm going up. And it's kind of cool <laughs> to see those arrows or see the you know, 30 minutes out to look at that. Oh, yeah, I was right. I do know myself. But also just – uh, you know, being able to take some sort of action with it is always nice.
1: Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, and and also because I've had diabetes so long, my sensitivity to lows is not as great as it used to be, um, and so the sensor again is a huge assist because if I'm not feeling it that much, the sensor says it may not be, but it's definitely dropping. And often, you know, I'm like, oh, well, let me give myself a blood sugar just to check and see. And sure enough, I'm at 65, and I didn't even realize it. But the sensor was telling me in advance of that, so it was kind of like oh, I don't want to, I don't want to listen to you. I'm busy. I don't want to pay attention. And the sensor is sort of saying, "Be better. I'm warning you." And sure enough, it's right. So, yeah, it's a, it's a great
0: advantage. It's it's nice to have that as a you know as a backup, right?
1: Yes, indeed, indeed. Really so,
0: is. you know, Key, you've you've lived a a long life with type one. You're very involved. You're on the front lines of research now. Um, So I'm sure you have a lot of diabetes related conversations. Do you ever, or or have you ever sort of experienced, you know, what people call diabetes burnout or where you were just sort of, uh, worn down with, with the long conversations? I know it's something that a lot of people deal with, especially early on, I think more in their first 10 years or so, but how do you deal with those types of things?
1: Well, yeah, it happens. Uh, It it doesn't happen as much anymore, partly because with practice, I've learned how to explain things better. You know, when you're first asked, and you're still kind of getting used to the whole concept, because diabetes is such a combination of juggling numbers. You know, this has to be high, and this has to be low, and this has to be rising, and this has to be dropping, and there's all kinds of different parameters that you have to keep in mind. So, you know, it, it... Familiarity was one of the best things to sort of avoid burnout because I'm not guessing or fumbling my way through the explanations as much because I just study enough. And I'm, I'm by no means, there's brilliant scientists at Medtronic and all these other places that understand it so much better than I do. But I have a layman's understanding that allows me to explain it to people. And it's amazing how many people who aren't diabetic, but they still have felt, some of the same symptoms after you, you know, had a really hard workout and you kind of been in this hungry, angry, angry mode, that's a low blood sugar. And once I explain it to them that way, they're like, "Oh, that's what you feel like when you're low. I felt that." Or after you have a huge Thanksgiving dinner, like a lot of us did recently, um, you feel kind of cranky and muscles ache and the joints are a little sore, and that's a high blood sugar. And so as time goes on, you kind of realize that everybody has some of these symptoms to some degree because we work our pancreases really hard in American culture. And so I've become more comfortable explaining it to people as I find ways to connect with their normal lives.
0: That's a great answer. I think um, I think oftentimes we're too hard on ourselves as type 1s. Just because that's just, you know, it's our human nature. Like you said, it's something that I don't think I've ever heard before that in American culture, we're very hard on our pancreases anyway. Ish. Yeah. Maybe that's how why so many of them are either overworked or wearing out. right? Um, yes. yeah. And it's, it's cool to see now that we have the technology um, and the research and just the, you know, we've got the time put in now uh, of, you know, we know what, how a pancreas behaves, you know, that it's that right. it makes adjustments, that it takes you know data. And I think that now that we have that, I'm really excited to see what the next 25 years of, uh, of life with Type 1 in the U.S. and, and around the world is like, uh, and how yeah. it makes it better for the following 25 years after that. It's going to be really interesting.
1: Oh, yeah. I, who knows with robotics and advanced algorithms and, and IBM's Wilson uh, artificial intelligence and all kinds of things. Um, I think we're coming closer closer and closer to an actual... Artificial pancreas, uh, maybe not implanted, but still doing all the things that an artificial pancreas does. Uh, we just have to re- reload it with insulin occasionally. Uh, so yeah, I think the I think the prospects are are really great, and um, I, my wife is intending to keep me alive as long as possible. So I, I may get hopefully be around for the next twenty or so years of that research. Let's hope.
0: Well, I, uh, yeah, I hope you are as well, and uh, looking forward to getting your thoughts on all the new stuff that's coming out. Uh, yeah. Key, I asked this question to all my podcast guests. Uh, if, yes. you've, if you've made it to the end of an episode, I'm sure you've heard it. Um, and here, here it goes. I'm really excited to hear your answer because I think you, know, you have had more opportunities for interactions like this than anybody else, obviously, on my show. So uh, here's the context. Uh, you are in an airport and they are about to close the door to your gate. So you have 30 seconds before they close the door to your gate, and you can't miss the flight. Right. Um, but you run into somebody who's either recently been diagnosed with type 1 or is struggling with their type 1. Uh, what's the one thing that you tell them in that 30 seconds?
1: Um, like how to get – are they past the TSA ins- inspectors yet? Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: They're past TSA. They're just okay. walking by your gate just as you're just as you uh, just you're as about,
1: you're to, about to get on. The 30 30- seconds. Seconds, I have to give them. Uh, definitely get in touch with uh, the American Diabetes Association and the JDRF. And uh, I have personally have to recommend looking online at uh, some Meditronic social media and other sources. And um, this is the best time in history to be a diabetic. So just do the research and live a very full life. That's great. Is that thirty seconds?
0: That's yeah. That's thirty. I'll. T- <laughs> I will. I will tell you that there are people who break my rule, and they're like, no, no, no. I'm just going to miss my flight. I don't care what's on the other end. But uh, yeah. I. I do like that. Uh, I, I love that answer. I think getting involved is something that you know I wish I would have done sooner. Uh, I don't think I realized because I'm pretty self reliant. I don't think I realized that. How, how much better it is to just share and know that there are other people around going through the same things. I didn't want to yeah. go to diabetes camp. I was much too cool for all that um, right. when I was 16 and I knew everything. So, um, you know, now getting involved and seeing what this community has to offer and, and getting involved with JDRF and, uh, and Medtronic, I totally agree. You, uh, you would not uh, be remiss in, uh, in looking for, for help or inspiration or just other stories there.
1: Yeah and it really it's there was a time when i was young where it was so unknown that most people would just look at you and either go is that contagious or i've never heard of that but our information system is so improved over the years the diabetes community has done a great job of communicating it and i'm not like heavily involved i don't live and talk and think and breathe diabetes all the time i like to live a very full life still involved in some creative writing as well as the writing I do at Medtronic and working in Hollywood a bit, trying to, you know, still keep some creative ideas out there. And so I'm not a fiend about studying diabetes all the time, but there's a lot more people now and in growing numbers that are living long lives with diabetes. And if you're a new one, don't short circuit yourself. Give yourself every chance by learning a little bit more about diabetics doing things because they really are, and, and I've lived a lot longer life than the doctors ever imagined and had a lot more uh, accomplishments than my parents could have ever envisioned. Um, so thank God for that, but also thank God for organizations like ADA and JDRF and great doctors and companies like Medtronic and others, Beckham Dickinson and so forth, because it's the best time in history to be a doctor.
0: Well, but the best
1: you, still yet to come.
0: That's right. I love it. Uh, I love your outlook, Key. It was so great to meet you, uh, not only uh, you know for this interview, but in person uh, yeah. out at Medtronic and the work that you guys are doing out there is so great. And I think as patients, uh, we don't often get to see behind the scenes of that work, and I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Um, and I'm excited, man. I uh, you know I I'm scheduled at least for now to get my 670 sometime in January. So, uh, you know, I love uh, looking forward to, you know, having another conversation with you when my pump makes adjustments for me based on my uh, cool. readings. That'll
1: be pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah, you, you did a great presentation for us in, uh, in um, California. And uh, I'd love to, to visit again and, and take questions if there's people that have other questions. I'd, I'd love to good well, feedback.
0: Well, we will definitely uh, communicate any questions that we get from the interview. And, uh, Keith, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. Uh, on this holiday weekend, and uh, you have a great rest of your day.
1: You too. My great pleasure, Rob. Thanks a lot.